Our text this morning is out of Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. And this morning we are concluding. Um, Romans is kind of split up like the Heidelberg Catechism. Is it sin, salvation, service, guilt, grace, gratitude. We're finishing the, gra- or the, the guilt part. And we're moving on to grace next week, Lord willing. But the Lord still has some words for us in that first category this morning. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word this morning. And we do, we do indeed pray, just as we sung, that you would show Christ to us through your word. Lord, we don't want merely a moral lesson or even a dogmatic teaching Um, though ethics and doctrine are important. Father, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, reveal Christ to us, that we may see our need, but that we may also see in him the answer to that need. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. No one likes being mischaracterized. No one likes being lied about. Naturally, we all want to be portrayed in the best light. So, how would it make you feel if you had a friend or a colleague and they began to say 
things that were totally false about you, things that in every way, shape, and form were untrue. How would that make you feel? It's hurtful. Maybe some of you know this by experience. And it, it's hurtful in a threefold kind of way. What's hurtful is the sense of betrayal, that what's being said behind your back is designed to hurt you, both you personally and your reputation, but also the fact that what's being said about you is a lie. It's one thing if what's being said about you is true, but when it's a lie, it stings on a different level. And in Romans 3, 1 through 20, God's word speaks about our natural condition in less than glowing terms. It communicates that there's something fundamentally wrong with each and every one of us. But the difference between these harsh words and the harsh words of someone who's spreading a rumor about us is this. What God says about us is actually the truth. And the intent behind the words are designed not to hurt us, but rather to help us, to help us to see our need and eventually to lead us to the healing waters of salvation found in Christ alone. So this morning, we want to take some time and look at our unrighteousness, which Paul lays out here, held up against the bright light of God's perfect righteousness. And I have three points for us this morning, which I give ahead of time. Because God's righteousness is supreme, we should lay down our reason before him. Because God's righteousness is supreme, we should lay down our pride before him. And then finally, because God's righteousness is supreme, we should lay down our life before him. But first, because God's righteousness is supreme, we should lay down our reason before him. The apostle, as we know, did not shrink back from speaking things that were controversial in his day and are still controversial today. After all, he was lied about, he was persecuted, he was stoned, he was whipped, all for things that he said about Jesus being the Messiah. And so here in verses 1 through 8, the apostle anticipates some objections to what he has said concerning his fellow Jews in the previous chapter. For starters, someone, just kind of put it in different words, someone asks, what's the advantage of being a Jew then, Paul, if circumcision and having the law do not save? Much in every way, he responds. I really like how the English poet William Cowper put it, speaking of the Jews and their advantage. They and they only, amongst all mankind, received the transcript of the eternal mind, were trusted with his own engraven laws, and constituted guardians of his cause. Theirs were the prophets, theirs the priestly call, and theirs by birth the Savior of us all. So a major advantage for them that Paul's getting at was that for the Jews, out of all of the people in the world, they received the very words of God, words of heavenly wisdom, words that imparted life, and words that ultimately pointed forward to that life, capital L, that would come in the fullness of time to rescue sinners. It's only too sad that they did not take advantage of the gifts and the revelations that God had given to them. May such never be said about any of us here. 
Then someone may ask, well, okay, Paul, but not all of us Jews believe. So doesn't that mean that God's uh, faithfulness is put into question? Doesn't that mean that God's being unfaithful to his Old Testament promises? I love how he responds, may it never be, may it never be, or by no means. The apostle is abhorred, he's struck with horror at the thought that somebody could conclude that God's faithfulness is somehow dictated by man's faithlessness. He responds saying, by saying, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. In other words, if everybody on the face of the earth were to rise up in revolt against one of the a, a jot or a tittle of God's word, a very small detail or a very great detail, if everybody in the whole world was opposed to God, he says, let God be true, but every man a liar. Just because some of the Jews rejected God's Messiah, it does not follow that his promises, for instance, to Abraham aren't coming to pass. You know, namely that in Abraham's seed, all the nations would be blessed. God's plan of salvation for the whole world is going just as planned, even if there are particular Jews, even if there are a large number of Jews who reject that Messiah. And now carnal human reason really rears its ugly head in these next two questions. In summary, this is what is asked. If my unrighteousness serves to highlight God's righteousness, if my pollution serves to spotlight God's purity, and so God is all the more praised and exalted, then why would God inflict wrath on me? This is like uh, asking, hey, police officer, if I rob as many banks as I can, and so your detective skills are gloriously put on display to the watching public, then why are you going to arrest me and lock me up? Foolishness, right? Totally foolish. And the word of God responds in essence by saying, if God won't punish you for your unrighteousness, if he won't, un if he won't punish anybody for their unrighteousness, then how will he judge the world on the last day? And what's implied is that we all know that God is going to judge the world on the last day, which means that the objection at hand is absurd. The scripture concludes that the condemnation of those who reason this way, that sin should be excused because it, it illustrates or puts a spotlight on God's righteousness, um, that the condemnation set for them is fully deserved. Now, this might make us think, okay, well, does this mean that we can't ask questions about our faith? By no means. I think the Bible has an open sort of attitude when it comes to believers, even unbelievers, asking questions about their faith. And I think there are all kinds of resources available online or things that have been published in, in book form um, that could be of use. I'm available, you know, most of the time. Feel free to give me a call if you need assistance walking through a difficulty when it comes to your Christian faith or life. Um, so that's one thing, and I think that's okay. However, it's, it's never wise for us to question God's integrity, and that's what's happening here. It's never wise for us to use our reason to try to back God into a corner in order to justify sin. 
The right use of our reason isn't to try to find a way around God's word, but it is humbling ourselves, including our reason, before his word. Isaiah 66, 2 says, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Do you tremble at God's word? Okay, moving on from verses 1 through 8, more or less the rest of the chapter. We want to look at this point. Because God's righteousness is supreme, we should lay down our pride before him. And after answering these few objections, after this brief question and answer session with the Apostle Paul, he gets back to his main arguments. And when we look back, we remember in chapter 1, specifically 118 to 32, he dealt with the unbelieving Gentile world. Then in chapter 2, he dealt with the unbelieving Jewish world. And then now in chapter 3, the, uh, the focus has broadened. His scope becomes universal. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. All are under sin. Rich, poor, young, old, male, female, responsible citizens, irresponsible citizens, the drug addict downtown, the new mayor, right? everybody is under sin apart from Jesus. When we have an important task ahead of us, one that we want to deal with successfully, a lot of times we'll say something like this. I'm going to stay up late tonight. I want to get on top of that, right? I want to get on top of that. <clears throat> well, what's being said here, Jew, Gentile, all people are by nature under sin. They're under sin. They're not on top of it. They're not conquering it. They're not taking care of it. Rather, they are being dominated and conquered by it. To be under sin is to be under the power and dominion of sin, but also to be under the guilt of sin. And there is no way yet in the chapter that we discover how to get out from underneath that sin. Then notice in verse 10, the apostle grounds this statement that all people are under sin with the words, with the authority really of the Old Testament. He says, as it is written, you know, thus saith the Lord in the Old Testament idiom, as it is written. Then we have before us quite a collection of Old Testament passages strung together, like pearls maybe are strung together on a pearl necklace all together and individually highlighting the depravity of our nature. Now in America, there are many who, perhaps unconsciously even, I believe, I think, the two main myths about the nature of man. The first myth is that man is basically good. That while we might fudge on our taxes a little bit, while we might run a red light here and there, or cheat on a quiz, that we don't actually do anything hell-worthy. The second myth is that, this one's more, I think, contemporary, They'll both apply. Uh, the second myth is that if something feels natural, if we're not breaking the law, and if we're not hurting anyone, then it must be fine. 
Maybe it's positively good. It's morally appropriate. The modern theologian Lady Gaga put it this way in one of her songs. No matter gay, straight, or bi, lesbian, transgender life, I'm on the right track, baby. I was born to survive. I'm beautiful in my way because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Don't hide yourself in regret. Just love yourself and you're set. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Well, okay. So there might be nuances out there, at least in the Western world, but I think this kind of captures the way we think about man and woman and sin. But we can ask, how do these views square with the Holy Scripture? We want to take a minute to try to grasp how God views our natural condition. Because what we discover when we look at the Word of God compared to contemporary culture that the truth is found not so much in the crowd out there, but the truth is found with God and the truth that He has made known in His Word. How does He begin? None is righteous. No, not one. John Calvin, in his commentary on Romans, I I like what he says. He said basically that this this line is kind of a general summary statement of everything that follows. So this is what is generally true. And then when we uh, sort of dive deeper, um, we get to more particular things that are true about our depravity. But none is righteous. No, not one. Man, in other words, is not basically good. He is unrighteous. But things get worse. No one understands. In other words, sin affects our intellectual life, the way we reason and evaluate things, and especially the way we evaluate spiritual things. While under sin, we cannot understand spiritual things. We'll get to that again later in Romans 8, uh, but a good commentary on that is also 1 Corinthians 2, 14. For those of you who are taking notes, 1 Corinthians 2.14. But, yeah, that's, that, is, that is an issue. Sin affecting the intellectual life. But what's worse yet, if we continue, is that no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. This couldn't be more clear, unambiguous, or more alarming. The sin in man's heart is so profound that no one goes looking for God on their own. Now, people may search after an idol, a God crafted in their own image and likeness that justifies their behavior and their actions, but nobody seeks after the one true and living God unless grace intervenes and makes the difference. But notice how sin affects not just the intellect, but also the will. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Because sin is so firmly rooted in our hearts, in other words, every action that flows from our heart is tainted with sin. Just as you can't get purified water out of a muddied spring, so you cannot get true good works out of an unregenerate heart. And verse 18 summarizes the matter well. How does he conclude? There is no fear of God before their eyes. The fear of God tends to restrain sin in our lives, right? 
out of reverence for the, the majesty and the awesomeness, and the wonderful, just mighty working power of God, we don't rush headlong into muddy puddles, maybe like a pig or a swine might jump into a muddy puddle. No, but we are restrained out of reverence for God. The fear of God, according to Proverbs, is the beginning of wisdom. And so what is it but foolishness and blindness to cast off this fear? You tie all these passages together and you have a graphic picture of how far humanity has fallen from their original fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden. Now, this picture should cause us to cast our pride far from us. It makes no sense for us to puff ourselves up against other people, co-workers, spouses, neighbors, uh, siblings. It makes no sense for us to, to puff ourselves up against them, knowing that this picture is true of all of us apart from Jesus. Instead, we should sorrow over our sin. We should know that such things are, are displeasing to God and, of course, hinder our growth in grace. We should confess our sin, bringing our secret sins and our obvious sins before the throne of God's grace. We should hate sin, we should flee from it, and we should forever walk in gratitude that God in Christ has forgiven us of these same sins. Let us stay close to the God who keeps us far from sin. Let us draw near to God, and he has promised that he will draw near to us. This is a safe place for the saints. Are you struggling with sin? Are you tempted? Stay near to God. The further we are from God, of course, the more open we are to sin. But the closer we are to God, the more aware we are of sin, and the less we have an appetite for it. Finally, and most briefly, because God's righteousness is supreme, we should lay down our life before him. And in the final two verses of our passage this morning, the apostle concludes his argument. And he turns again to the moral law of God, telling us that before the righteousness of this law, and before the righteousness of the law giver, every mouth is stopped and the whole world is held accountable before God. In other words, there are no remaining arguments that could be marshaled to try to extricate ourselves from this guilty verdict. As is sometimes said, it is what it is. And I think each of us, we really need to, to sit down and to digest this reality. We need to digest this truth if we want to understand ourselves, if we want to understand who God is, and if we want to understand the gloriousness of the gospel. Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastor, a previous or pastor who's gone to be with the Lord, he said it well when he remarked, you do not begin to be a Christian until your mouth is shut, is stopped, and you are speechless and have nothing to say. You put up your arguments and produce all your righteousness. Then the law speaks, and it all withers to nothing, becomes filthy rags and dung, and you have nothing to say. And what else can really be added to that? What else can we say here this morning after we look at what we've 
been reading these last few weeks, the law, it, it, it eviscerates us. It shatters our pride. It shows us our need. It shows us our inability and helplessness to be saved by any way we might imagine or even by the law that God has given to us. And after we acknowledge that, after we acknowledge our need, that's when we can turn from ourselves and our own righteousness to look to Jesus, who is the righteous one, the only righteous one, in whom we find forgiveness and eternal life. Jesus is the way to God. He is the only way. And beginning next week, we're going to, by grace, look at the gospel in some detail and see how Paul unfolds the meaning of the gospel for a number of chapters. I'm, I'm excited and I hope you are too. As I said, we've just finished the, the sin section of Romans. Of course, we'll continue to talk about sin. But next, we're moving into that section about salvation. And then in a good while from now, we'll be in the section concerning service and how we live in light of all of these things. Uh, but until then, brothers and sisters, we have this holy and this abundant meal before us which displays in a tangible fashion this very same gospel. I look forward to us going to that meal this morning next. But before that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gracious provision that you have provided yourself for us, God. You've provided your Son for us and your Spirit, and you have provided salvation eternal life, Father, that you do not leave us nor forsake us, and that you have given us promises that we will grow in grace even, that though we might fall short, God, that you will be by our side in the midst of every situation, every setback, every trial. We thank you for this meal that you have given to us, a sign and a seal of your gracious covenant to us. Thank you, God, for your word which has been written, for your word which has been preached, and for your word which we get to see with our own eyes this morning. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name alone. Amen.